Well, we return once more to address the topic of church unity, this time from Romans 15, verses 1 through 7. Over the past two weeks, we've looked at Romans 14, in which Paul commands the church to preserve unity despite disagreements over what he calls, in verse 1, matters of opinion. That is, those matters of conscience and Christian freedom, those issues which the Bible does not address either by explicit command or by necessary inference. For the church at Rome, those issues at stake were matters of particular interest to Jewish converts to Christianity, like the eating of non-kosher meat, or the observance of the weekly Sabbath and other Jewish holy days, or the drinking of wine. Over the past few weeks, we have identified a number of matters of conscience and Christian freedom that could potentially divide our fellowship here at First Baptist Nixa. For instance, whether or not Christians should drink alcohol or participate in certain holiday traditions like Santa Claus or trick-or-treat or others. Whether Christians should send their kids to public school or own luxury cars or listen to secular music or watch certain movies or whether it's wise or loving to wear a mask. All of these issues and a thousand more besides them generate a lot of differing opinions and a lot of heated emotions in our church and in other churches. And it is imperative that we learn how to disagree without despising one another and dividing. The ministry of the gospel and the glory of Christ is at stake. From Romans 14, we learn that the unity of the church depends upon two basic commitments. Verses 1 to 12 showed us that it depends upon an attitude of grace in which those who are strong don't despise those who are weak. Those who are weak don't pass judgment on those who are strong. And it depends, verses 13 to 23, on an action of love. The the strong determining not to flaunt their freedom and in so doing to put a stumbling block in the way of the weak. In the central verse that divides those two halves of Romans 14, that is Romans 14, 13, you'll find both of those basic fundamental commitments. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. There's the attitude. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the place of a brother. There's the action. Now, in that first sermon, I gave you five principles that you need to know in order to possess an attitude of grace towards those with whom you disagree and so preserve the unity of the church. And I want to roll through those very quickly because these three sermons, 14, 1 to 12, 14, 13 to 23, and today's sermon, 15, 1 to 7, they all hang together. They're all interrelated. They're all addressing the same fundamental issue. So verses one to 12, five principles that ought to undergird our attitude of grace towards one another. Number one, I have no right to reject one whom God has welcomed. I ought to welcome all whom God has welcomed on the same basis by which God has welcomed them, namely repentance and faith in Christ. Number two, I am not my brother's master. God is. 
Therefore, I have no right to bind my brother's conscience where God has left it free. Number three, God will make my brother stand. His word is sufficient for that purpose. God does not need me to pile upon my brother extra scriptural rules in order to make him holy. Number four, Christ died and lives again in order that he would be Lord of his people, not the law. Christ is Lord, not the law. Holiness is not to be found in a law. It's not to be found in a ritual. Holiness is found in a person, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, if my brother loves and trusts and follows Christ according to the rule of Christ, which is the word of Christ, then he's going to be fine. He will be saved. Fifth, We will all be judged on the basis of faithfulness to our own conscience. Therefore, there is no need for us to enter into judgment upon one another for their conscience. Those were the five principles from verses 1 through 12 that ought to undergird our attitude of grace towards one another. In the second sermon last week, I gave you five principles of Christian freedom and then three practices of Christian love, which likewise serve to preserve the unity of the church. They are, number one, all things are objectively clean. No thing can be unclean in itself. Only the human heart can be defiled. Number two. However, not all things are subjectively clean. Something can be clean for one person and unclean for another person. If you don't believe that something is clean according to the word of God, but you partake of it anyway, your partaking is not of faith, it is of sin. Number three, you are not free to destroy your brother. In other words, you are not free to play fast and loose with your brother's conscience. You are not free to not love. Number four, you are not free to destroy your own conscience. You're not free to not walk by faith. And number five, the kingdom of God is the goal of our church. What matters is not eating or not eating. It doesn't matter whether you eat or don't eat. It doesn't matter whether you drink or don't drink. That's not what the kingdom of God is about. Whoever possesses righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, he is a child of the kingdom. Whoever possesses those qualities, verse 18, is acceptable to God and approved by men. Now, from those five principles come three practices of Christian love. Number one, the strong must not flaunt their freedom and at times must even forego their freedom in order to walk in love. Number two, the weak must not remain weak, but rather must grow strong in faith by continually checking their conscience against the dictates of the word of God. And number three, the church must not judge one another by non-essentials, but rather by God's standard. In other words, the question that we ought to ask, really the only question by which we ought to determine fellowship in this church is, do they possess righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? If so, they are acceptable to God and ought to be approved by men. Now, today, we're going to build upon that foundation, and we're going to ask the question of why. Is church unity really all that important in the long run? 
I mean, obviously we can all agree that constant infighting and squabbling in the church is bad, but, but why not just continually subdivide into little niche communities until we achieve churches in which everyone agrees with everyone else on every little thing? Wouldn't that be better than going through the hard work of trying to preserve unity even in the midst of disagreement? Why not divide into the homeschooling church, the Christian school church, and the public school church? Or the contemporary music church and the traditional music church? Or the pro-Trump church and the anti-Trump church, the pro-mask church, the anti-mask church? Why go through all the blood, sweat, and tears of trying to overcome strongly held, sincerely held differences of opinion and convictions in the pursuit of Christ-focused, spirit-wrought love and gospel-centered unity? Why? The answer which Paul provides in our passage today is because it redounds to the greater glory of God. It pleases God. It makes him look spectacular when his redeemed people love him and love his people more than they love their preferences. When the world looks upon a visibly diverse church where all they seem to have in common is faith in Christ and submission to his word... The world wonders at the love and the unity that exists in that church. And God looks all satisfying and infinitely glorious. Why pursue unity in the church in spite of all that could possibly dis, uh, we could disagree over and could divide us? Because it glorifies God. That's Paul's answer. Now, we're going to divide this morning's text into three components. I know you don't have a, uh, an outline on the back of your bulletin. Somebody asked me this morning, oh, where, where's the bulletin? My answer was, uh, Mary Kay went on vacation this week on Tuesday, and I didn't finish the sermon until Thursday. Somebody, asked, somebody else asked, well, why is there a bulletin on the, kids bullet, or on, on the kids' worship bulletin? Or why is there an outline on the kids' bulletin? And my answer was because I did that this morning. So if you want an outline, you need to pick up a kids' bulletin, but you have to fill it out in crayon. <laughs> All right? If not, if you want to be adults, you can just write these three, these three points down. Number one, we'll look at the basis for the church's unity. Number two, we'll look at the means of the church's unity, the means of maintaining the church's unity. And number three, we'll look at the ultimate aim of church unity. Basis means aim of church unity. All right? So what is the basis of the church's unity? What is it that binds us together at First Baptist Nixa? With all of the potential differences of opinion that exist among us, what do we hold in common? Well, I want to begin at the end of this passage where Paul sums up his teaching, not just on 1 through 7 of chapter 15, but on the entire section beginning at Romans 14, 1. Look at verse 7 with me. Therefore, welcome one another as, there's the most important word in this verse, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here we have the reason that we are to welcome one another. Some translations will say, because Christ has welcomed you, and that's okay. Or we have the manner in which we are to welcome one another. Other translations have, as, or in the same way that Christ has welcomed you, and that's even better. 
Either way, though, Paul is providing us with a basis, a reason to welcome one another, which I remind you means more than just merely coexisting and tolerating with one another. It means receiving one another into your intimate fellowship and care, into both the church and into your own home and heart. In other words, Paul is simply reiterating in Romans 15, 7, what he'd already said in Romans 14, 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, this was the basis of my claim that we have an obligation at this church to welcome anyone whom God has welcomed. There's chapter 14 and verse 3. And to welcome them on the same basis on which God has welcomed him. There's Romans 15, 7. So the question we need to answer this morning is, on what basis has God welcomed us? Because that's the very same basis on which we ought to welcome one another. Well, we can answer that question without even having to travel outside of Romans. Because God's welcome of sinners, in other words, justification is one of the major themes of this epistle. And when we look at the book of Romans, we see, number one, that God has welcomed us by grace. That is, there is no meritorious basis by which God welcomes sinners. None. Which is good news because Paul has made it abundantly clear in the first three chapters of Romans that we have no merit. We have no righteousness that we could present to God anyway. No matter who we are or where we come from or what we've done, no matter what our background is, whether it be moral or immoral, religious or irreligious, Jew or Gentile, all of us are sinners. All of us are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, corrupted to the core. So if our welcome, if our justification before God were based on our own merit, our own righteousness, we would, every one of us, be damned. Romans 3, 9. What then, Paul says, are we Jews any better off because we have the law, because we have the covenants, because we have the commandments? Are we any better off? Paul says, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You know who he's talking about? He's talking about you. That's a description of you apart from the Holy Spirit and the grace of Christ. But God does not deal with us on the basis of our merit or our righteousness. He welcomes us on the basis of his grace. He chose us by grace. Romans 11.5 So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise grace would no longer be grace. God didn't choose you because, he was, because you were lovely. He chose you because he's gracious. He justifies us by grace. 
Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God didn't receive you because you made yourself receivable. He received you on the basis of his grace. And he keeps us by grace. Romans 5, 2, through him, we have also obtained access by, by faith into this grace in which we stand. If we are in Christ, we stand in the sphere of grace. We don't stand upon our own merit and our own righteousness. That would just be sand. We stand upon the solid rock of the grace of God purchased for us in Christ. So from start to finish, our relationship with God is rooted in his free, unmerited, sovereign grace. His welcome is not earned by our merit. It is not kept by our merit. It is gracious. It is free. Therefore, so should be our welcome of others. No one in this church should have to earn my acceptance by having something to offer me or by thinking the same way that I think about politics or worship style or even by agreeing with me on non-essential matters of biblical doctrine like eschatology or spiritual gifts. We must welcome one another by grace as... Christ has welcomed us. Second, God has welcomed us through faith. It was not through our performance of certain works or certain rituals that God received us, but solely by our believing his promise in Christ. The gospel is not do this and you will be saved. It is believe me and I will save you. Rely upon me, trust me, set your hope upon me, and I will save you. That's the gospel. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 3.21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 4.4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, literally not counted according to grace, not if he works for it but rather as his due, literally according to debt. If you try to relate to God on the basis of works, you're not relating to God on the basis of grace. You're relating to God on the basis of debt. You are banking your eternity on the fact that when you stand before God in judgment, you will have sufficient merit to offer him such that he will let you into heaven. That is not a good gamble to make. Not if what Paul said about you in Romans 3 is true. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to me very, very closely. 
God accepts us not because we are righteous, not because we try our best to be righteous, not because we promise to be righteous. God accepts us because we believe upon the righteousness of his son. Anyone who has ever been welcomed by God into a saving relationship with himself has been welcomed by faith alone and not by works, not by being, not by doing, not by promising righteousness. Therefore, our welcome of one another must not be on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith. So if you share with me a common faith, a common trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, for the power for holiness, and ultimately for a resurrection unto eternal life, then you may also share with me in the membership of this church, regardless of what you believe about politics, regardless of what you believe about masks, regardless of how you prefer to worship with hymns or contemporary songs. Third, God has welcomed us in Christ. God's welcome of sinners had to come in a way that would not violate his divine holiness and justice. In order for God to consider the debt of sin that we owed to be paid, it actually had to be paid in full. In order for God to declare justice to be satisfied against us for our sins, justice actually had to be satisfied. The full measure of God's wrath had to be poured out. In order for God to bestow the blessing of eternal life, which is only given to the righteous, righteousness had to be achieved. The full standard of the law had to be obeyed in perfect righteousness. This is what necessitated the saving work of Christ, who in his life and death and resurrection became our substitute, our representative under the law in the judgment of God at the cross. In his perfect life, Christ obeyed the will of God in perfect righteousness, thus meriting eternal life and the blessing which God promises to the righteous. And in his death on the cross, Christ bore the curse of the law and absorbed in himself the wrath of God and satisfied the demands of God's justice in the place of his people. Romans 3.23 again. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is, as a wrath-absorbing, justice-satisfying, debt-paying sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You're not righteous. Jesus is. So what God did was to take Jesus's righteousness and through faith to give it to you to credit it to you so that you could enter into eternal life. Romans 5.18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, it's talking about the first Adam, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. He's talking about the second Adam. That is Jesus. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Salvation is found only in Christ. And there is no salvation outside of Christ. God welcomes all who are in Christ, for whom Christ lived and died and rose again. And God rejects all who are outside of Christ, who have no stake and no interest in his saving work. Jesus is the basis of God's welcome for sinners. Therefore, Jesus must be the basis of our welcome of one another. If you are in Christ, you are my brother, my sister, the co-heir with me of the grace of life. If you are in Christ, you are my brother, my sister, for whom Christ died just as he died for me. Can you see how our common union with Christ and inheritance in Christ infinitely exceeds any other difference of opinion we might have in matters of food and drink or days and weeks or politics and mask ordinances. We're going to inherit the kingdom together. Do you get that? So what does it matter what you and I think about masks or presidents or vaccines or worship styles? Grace, faith, and Christ, in other words, the gospel must be the basis of our unity here at First Baptist Nixa, and there must be no other. We must welcome one another as God, Romans 14.3, in Christ, Romans 15.7, has welcomed us, namely, freely, graciously, through faith, because of Christ. Now, before we move on to the means of unity, let me pause and ask, has God welcomed you in Christ? See, the other side of affirming that we must welcome all whom God has welcomed on the same basis on which God has welcomed them, the other side of that is that we cannot welcome into membership, into communion, into spiritual fellowship. We cannot welcome those whom God has not welcomed. So for the past 10 minutes, you've heard me explain the gospel. My question to you is, do you believe it? Have you set your hope on it? Is that the basis on which you relate to God? Have you gone to God through Christ, not pleading any merit or any righteousness of your own, but pleading only the righteous life and atoning death of Christ as the means by which you'll enter into eternal life and heaven? I hope so, because that's the only way you're getting in. That's the only basis on which God welcomes sinners. There is no other way. And so I want to pause in the middle of this sermon and just plead with you and exhort you. Go to God now, not on the basis of your own works, your own goodness, your own righteousness, but only on the basis of the works and the righteousness of Christ. If you, had, if you walked in here this morning having a question, how can I get right with God? This is it. And this is only it. 
Go to God now and confess to him your sin and your unrighteousness and your need and your desire for his saving mercy. Confess that you believe in Christ who lived and died and rose again in order to secure your welcome before God. Dare to believe that God is gracious to sinners in Christ, sinners like you. That's how you lay hold of salvation. That's how you call upon the name of the Lord. And as Paul promises in Romans 10, 13, who Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you saved? Because if you're not, you can't be one of us. If you are, you can be. And you must be. So we've seen that the basis of our unity must be the gospel. What are the means of our unity. In other words, how do we actively pursue and maintain this gospel-centered unity in the face of so many potential disruptions? Well, Paul lays out three in this passage. First, we maintain our unity by foregoing our freedom for the sake of the weak. Now, not a lot needs to be said on that point this morning because we've already covered this principle over the past two weeks, particularly in Romans 14, 13, 15, and 20 to 22, which says, 14, 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Forgo your freedom. 14, 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. In other words, forgo your freedom. Or verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. In other words, forgo your freedom. Don't exercise your freedom to eat or drink or partake in any other matter of conscience or Christian freedom. If in so doing, the weaker brother will be grieved. How would that happen? Well, maybe he can't yet reconcile your freedom with Christian holiness. Or maybe he, feel, he will feel pressured to violate his own conscience in order to fit in. Don't put him in that situation. It would be destructive for him. It would be divisive for the church. So exercise your Christian liberty privately. Don't flaunt your freedom. It's the same basic point Paul makes again in verse 1 of chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Bear with, by the way, is another not so great translation. It, It doesn't really give the proper sense of Paul's meaning. It makes it sound as if Paul is saying, put up with the weaker brother. Just bear with them. No, that's... That's not what Paul is calling for. He's not calling for us to set aside our freedom in some kind of grumbling, pouting way. Like, I can't believe I have to go forego my freedom just because so-and-so can't handle it. That's not, that's not the attitude of love that Paul is establishing. To bear with literally means to, to take up their burden and put it on your own shoulders. Paul is picturing the weak brother as under a burden of legalism from which you are free. 
So rather than criticize him or humiliate him for his burden, Paul is calling the strong to take that burden off of his shoulders and to carry it ourselves, which is precisely what we're doing when we don't press our freedoms at the expense of our brother's tender conscience. What Paul is calling for is an attitude that says, I love you more than I love food. And I love you more than I love drink. And I love you more than I love whatever matter of conscience is in dispute. So I will willingly, lovingly, joyfully forego that freedom so as not to offend you. That is how unity is maintained. Second, we maintain our unity by following the way, the example of Christ. As in all things, our pattern of love is Jesus himself. So Paul says, verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So the ultimate goal is not my temporary earthly pleasure, but my brother's eternal joy that comes from him being built up in faith. And I want you to note that this is not the same thing as simply always giving in to my brother and allowing his overly sensitive extra biblical convictions to dictate everything that goes on in the church. We're not held in tyranny by the tender consciences of the weak. Rather, the goal is edification. The goal is the building up of the weaker brother. So let me give you two episodes from the ministry of Jesus that I think demonstrates the the two aspects of this principle, and you'll see what I mean. The first comes from Matthew 17. When the tax collectors came to Peter and they asked why Jesus had not paid the two drachma temple tax, and, and, and Peter brought the matter to Jesus, Jesus replied, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes out. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Huh. So Jesus didn't have to pay the temple tax. He didn't have to pay the taxes on his own house. The temple belonged to him. That's his point. He's the son. It's his. But so as not to cause offense. Did you catch that? He paid it in a pretty spectacular way, I might add. Jesus knew the tax collectors of Capernaum couldn't handle the truth about his sonship and his freedom from the tax. So he didn't press the issue. It wasn't important at the moment. But there were other occasions when pressing his freedom was important. For instance, in Mark 2, when the Pharisees fussed at Jesus because his disciples were plucking the heads of grain on the Sabbath and were eating them and were thereby violating the laws and traditions against work. And this time, Jesus didn't let it slide. The Pharisees needed to know who they were dealing with and that they had no right to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. So Mark 2, 27 Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. In other words, he's telling them, I'm not bound by the Sabbath law because it's my day. I can do whatever I want 
on my day. You'll notice that in one instance, Jesus willingly laid aside his freedom from the temple tax. And in the other, he forced the Pharisees to recognize his freedom. What made the difference between Jesus' two responses? The gospel was at stake in the, in the Sabbath controversy, but not in the temple tax. In both cases, however, Jesus used the issue of his sovereign freedom in order to edify his disciples. Peter in the first instance, his disciples in the second. So, I take from that that there are times to forego your freedom for the sake of love and the edification of the weaker brother. And there are times to press your freedom for the sake of love and the edification of the weaker brother. You may willingly, joyfully, lovingly set aside your freedom for the sake of love, but you need not, indeed, Paul, Galatians 5.1, you must not allow your brother to bind you to unbiblical scruples. Wisdom and love know the difference between the two situations. The question is, what in this moment will build my brother up in faith? Forgoing my freedom or showing him my freedom? Paul likewise saw the difference between matters of indifference, for which you ought to forego your freedom, and matters of the gospel, for which you ought to demand your freedom. When it was the former, he said this, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God and give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, seeking, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. If that's all you had, you would think that Paul's saying, hey, always give in. To the weaker brother, always. But when Paul saw that the gospel was at stake in a way in which it wasn't at stake in Corinth, for instance, in Galatia or in Antioch, when Peter, out of fear of the Jews, tried to make ritual cleanliness a test of fellowship with Gentile brethren, Paul pressed his freedom and he made Peter and the rest of the church recognize it. Galatians 2.14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in, the, in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You see the difference? When the gospel was at stake... Paul pressed his freedom and Peter's responsibility to eat with the Gentiles and not to live like a Jew. But when the gospel was not at stake, but only matters of conscience, Paul gave up his freedom, whether he was with the Gentiles or whether he was with the Jews, so as not to give unnecessary offense. What makes the difference? How do we tell the difference? Again, the question is, which will work for my brother's everlasting joy and edification? Pressing my freedom, therefore showing him that he's not bound by the law, or foregoing my freedom, thereby leaving my brother's conscience undisturbed? 
Again, wisdom and love knows the difference. Third, we maintain our unity by feeding upon the word of God. Interestingly, Paul supports his reference to Christ with a quotation from Psalm 69, 9, verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, I'm going to pause here, and I'm going to hold off on this point until next week, because the way Paul uses this psalm is strange, and it requires some explanation. And more than that, Paul himself pauses here in verse 4, and he justifies his use of the psalm in this situation with one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible about the purpose of Scripture and how we ought to make use of it. That sermon requires a sermon, and so we're going to hold that off for next week. Look at verses 4 and 5. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another and in accord with Christ Jesus. So we'll take next week, we'll talk all about how to use the scriptures in the way that God intended for the benefit for which he intended it, namely that we might have hope. This morning, I just want you to notice four crucial links in, in Paul's thought that link the word of God to the unity of the church. Okay, here they are. First, the Bible, in this case, Psalm 69.9, Paul says, was written for our instruction. There's the first link. Second, the purpose of our instruction is that we might have hope through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures. There's the second link. Third, That endurance and encouragement of the scriptures ultimately comes from God, the God of endurance and encouragement, verse 5. There's the third link. Fourth, one of the effects of God's ministry to us in the scriptures is that we may live in harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. There's the fourth link. You put all of that together... And you see that in Paul's mind, one of the means of maintaining the unity of the church is for each of us to be feeding upon the scriptures, searching the scriptures in order that we might have hope and in order that the God of encouragement and endurance might cause us to live in harmony and unity with one another. So how does that happen? It's what we've been doing for the last 40 minutes. It's exactly what we do on Sunday mornings. Think about it. I'm teaching you, giving you instruction in the scriptures. Today, Romans 15, 1 to 7, with some help from Matthew 17 and Mark 2 and others. Through that teaching, we pray, God is teaching us how to live in unity. Indeed, in teaching us how to live in unity, he's actually unifying us. So one of the actions of love that you can take to maintain the unity of the church is to make sure that you're regularly going to the word of God for instruction. The word of God will shape your conscience and it will unify you with your brothers. One final point to be made this morning and that is the ultimate aim of unity. So I return to the question with which I began. Why? Why go through 
all of this hard, self-effacing, self-denying work of pursuing and maintaining unity at First Baptist Nick. So why not just divide into countless little niche congregations where everyone agrees with everyone else on everything? It's because unity and diversity within the church glorifies God. Verse 6. Okay, go to the scriptures. Through the scriptures, God will cause you to live in harmony with one another. Verse 6. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Listen. God is not glorified when a group of people who would get along swimmingly without Christ gather to form a church around a common race or a common socioeconomic class or a common worship style preference or political position or personality type or view of family worship or of education. That that doesn't glorify God. That doesn't make him look spectacular. When you form a group that looks like every other niche affinity group in the world, You know what that does? That makes him an accessory to your already defined homogenous affinity group. God doesn't want to be an accessory to your group of people that you already like. He wants to be the center and the core of a new community that have only in common faith in Christ and the power of the spirit. That's what makes him look spectacular. Where the only thing that this body has in common with one another is one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who love one another and are committed to one another's eternal joy and edification. When that church is able with one voice to glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's wondrous. Why? Because the only way that the world can account for it is the glory and power of Jesus. By this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. 